With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Whatever it is you do that makes you feel the best you can do, it may be smashing that goal in work or discovering a new and enjoyable pastime in your home life. But when you're at your best, you feel you can do great things. But life does sometimes throw you curveballs and stuff can come at you at once and leave you feeling overwhelmed or bogged down, like you just can't be that best version of you that you want to be. A useful tool that can help you in times such as this is therapy. There have been times in the past where I've found that talking to someone has helped me no end. Because it's not just for those who've experienced trauma in their lives at all, it can help you learn boundaries for yourself or develop coping skills and just help empower you to be the best version of you that there is. Because when you feel like that, you feel like there's no stopping you. If you are thinking of therapy, then BetterHelp is a great option. It's affordable, convenient, and entirely online for you. Plus, it couldn't be simpler to do. Simply fill out a short questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist as quick as. And if you feel that isn't working for you, then you can switch therapists whenever you wish, no extra charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes back to a brand new series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, still coming to you from a North Wales spare room and bringing you more often than not Those tales of true crime that you may not be familiar with, that may boggle the mind or horrify you, but that are all true and that I've sought out from behind the darkest doors that the UK and Ireland have in their grim history. Doing so is, as always, myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The one-eyed, hairy football pixie, my true crime enthusiast cat, is with me as always, and joining us are you the wonderful enthusiasts that have brought the show into Series 8. How mind-bending that is, I can't tell you. 
It is fabulous of you to be joining me in the MOG today. We both thank you. And as you do, then I hope you and yours are all good, all safe and all well. So, Series 8. Unbelievable that. It's so good to be back though. Breaks are necessary and all that, but you find in the downtime you're like, oh, I'll just research that or, oh, I'll just look this up here. Ooh, that's a good one for Patreon. And so on. And before you know it, you've not stopped true crime in at all really through your break, and your new series is looming up like a manslaughter charge on Alec Baldwin. But of course I've looked forward to getting back to it. I've changed bugger all to the formula of things whilst I've been away. I hope you'll be pleased to know. We shall have two, three, umpteen part tales. There'll be a Monsters Of episode, a Houses of Blood episode. Me and Jess will do something together. And of course, there will be an arc. Now, I do have a fair few tales researched extensively ready to put together myself for your ears that I look forward to bringing you. But I am curating for listeners scripted tales as ever to feature in this series. So if you have a case that lights a fire under your ass and you think it's a good fit for the show, perhaps it's a local one to you, or one that you have some kind of connection to even, then I can be reached through any of the show's social media links if you want to get in touch to suggest them, and I shall always get back to you about it. I do know of a couple that are being researched already by listeners, and I can't wait to bring them to you. If we can work together also, you won't find me ungrateful either. Thank you, by the way, for all of your kind messages and feedback concerning the previous series and the show in general. It's so most kind of you to do, and it really does help as a spur in those times when it can seem like a mountain to do around the other things that life throws at you. Thank you also goes out to the very kind, both returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. And I have got a bit of a list of shout-outs here to catch up with from the last series also. So. Apologies for the wait, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce anybody's name here as well. With shout-outs to new friends Victoria Gruyere, Jan Ray, Kelly Wardle, Suzanne Jones, Vicky Rogers, Susie D, Sharon Fraser, Ruth Nichols, James McCulloch, Vicky, Sandy Garrison, Elizabeth Llewellyn, Mick Ray, Georges Ardotir, Suzanne Drain, Amy Madonna, Amanda, Edwina Mason, Kat Toland, James Kahn, hope he got out of that hospital bed alright, Kelly Wadesh, Jill Innes and Rini Gagnon, plus Brett Spurden, Fardell Tammy, Sean Fawcett, Jason Clarkson, Ruth Hayes, Daniel Bradshaws, Jacob Grunit, Brent Robinson, Pam King, Dawn Ackrill, Alison McCarthy, Debbie Riches, Gabrielle Archer, Emily Jane Stewart, Karen Green, Rebecca Pittman, Leanne Barham Griffiths, Chris Pannell, and Sam Wilkinson, who have each opted to annually support the show. You touch me, folks. It's so very kind of you to do so. Thank you. And show stuff is with some of you now, or is winging its way to some of you anyway. Bloody cyber attacks and posty strikes and everything. What can I say? Whilst I hope you've all had chance to catch up with or make a start on the reams of unreleased bonus episodes that being a supporter of the show gets you. Now if like these folks you fancy supporting the show and getting yourself some extra enthusiast or perhaps even a bit of shonk sent out, then it's very simple and reasonable to do. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there, always with that podcast suffix. 
or there is as ever an omnipresent link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it quicker than Prince Harry's Christmas cards will now come back, return to sender. What an utter twat, eh? Each month, a new bonus tale gets added to the catalogue, and with a mixed bag there, you can go from stories of pure horror, such as An Offering to the Angels or The Cannibal and the Cowboy, through to more light-hearted accounts such as You Deserve a Medal for That, or the latest offering that's out, Are You Sure You're Legal? With a full series plus of episodes out there, unreleased. Right then, now I'm settled into my narrative. So let's get this Series 8 on the go then. And before I do, I have to say once again, it is bloody good to be back. The tale I've opted to begin the 8th series with may be a bit more of a familiar one to some. I know it's one that at least one friend of the show has covered a couple of years ago, but it is one that I have had half written for a couple of years myself now, and its time has finally come to air. It's a horrendous yet fascinating tale, one that there is simply so much to that I couldn't cover in one hit, so it's a two-part opener, and for it, I've even been on location and taken some from-the-scene footage. So look out for the videos and images being shared through the show's social media links. The tale overall will time jump somewhat too, but for the majority of what we shall cover, certainly in this part anyway, we head back to the year 2000 and to the city of Leeds in West Yorkshire. We visited Leeds before on the show, I'm sure that we have, but if you don't know Leeds, some stats include it was one of the Yorkshire Ripper's hunting grounds when Sutcliffe was at large, It's the birthplace of Marks and Spencer, the board game Cluedo, the spring-loaded mousetrap, it was the first place darts was ever televised, I think that's my favourite stat of the lot, the UK's tallest maypole is there, and that's a close second, and Leeds United is the football team that Adam from UK True Crime supports. Someone has to, I suppose, don't they? Whilst famous offspring from Leeds include artist Damien Hurst, Actor Malcolm McDowell, Blink and You'll Miss Her, former Prime Minister Liz Truss, Chef Marco Pierre White, and of course, the monster that was Jimmy Savile. For many years also, Leeds was home to an individual that several words will do to describe, but a suitable one is Predator. How police detected and took this individual off the streets is a quite remarkable tale. And if it is one you're unfamiliar with, then when you hear of the reason for the investigation, you'll be nothing but thankful that they were, for it put an end to an unbelievable catalogue of horror spanning many years. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so discretion is advised whilst listening. Bearing that in mind, it's a welcome back to the show for Series 8. And please join the true crime enthusiast for the first of a two-part tale I've entitled Poacher, Petman, Predator. 16-year-old lead schoolgirl Leanne Tiernan was nothing but a typical teenager. She was, as her mother Sharon Hawkhead later described her, certainly no saint, she could be a right little madam but no worse than any other teenager. With a pierced eyebrow, 
the older boyfriend and the lover bands such as Guns N' Roses hinted of her being at that time in adolescence when you can be stroppy and difficult. We've all been there, haven't we? The bubbly 16-year-old was actually a homegirl devoted to her family and friends, one who still loved a cuddly toy and a back rub when she was cold, being particularly close to her mother Sharon and her older sister Michelle, who she lived and did a lot with, and who were collectively known as the Three Musketeers. Although Leanne's parents, then 39-year-old Sharon, a finance clerk, and 40-year-old engineer Michael, had divorced several years before when Leanne was just four. She remained close to both parents and saw Michael and his new family regularly, loving spending time with her half-brothers and sister. Leanne was also close to her grandparents Hilary and Terry, who lived nearby, and still made a point each Sunday morning of attending church with her grandmother, helping out with the younger members of the church and had grown from the inquisitive child who loved attending the brownies, and naturally then moving onto the guides, who had even modelled for a time, into a happy, confident and well-liked young woman, studying for her nine GCSE exams, as a pupil at West Leeds High School, near a home on the Landseer Mount Estate in Bramley, a suburb of the West Yorkshire city of Leeds. Aside from her boyfriend of four months, a 19-year-old care assistant named Wayne Keeley, Leanne had lots of friends that she enjoyed spending time with, but her best friend out of these was a girl named Sarah Whitehouse, and the two were almost inseparable, sharing the same interests and even adapting a similar look in physicality and style. They did everything together, and it was to leave to go and meet Sarah for a trip into Leeds city centre that Leanne kissed her mother goodbye, laughing because she'd left lipstick marks on Sharon's cheek, and left her home early in the afternoon of Sunday, November the 26th, 2000. Leanne and Sarah had that Sunday afternoon taken the number 16 bus service from Bramley into Leeds city centre to do some Christmas shopping. Leanne, having borrowed some money from her mum so she could get her best friend some items of jewellery, a gold Elizabeth Duke wishbone ring and titanium belly button bar that Sarah had expressed interest in as a Christmas present. The two friends had a great afternoon out and were caught several times on many of the CCTV cameras covering the city centre as they shopped and hung around, before leaving to catch a bus the three miles back to Bramley shortly after 4.30pm in time to get home for Sunday dinner. During the short ride home, the two friends laughed and joked, chatting about other friends and boyfriends, and made plans to meet up again later on that evening. It was at 4.50pm that afternoon that after getting off the bus at a stop on the A647, Leanne said goodbye to Sarah at the corner of Huffley Lane. The conscientious and caring girl getting off the bus with her friend, several stops before her own designated stop just so she could ensure that Sarah got home okay that afternoon. And Leanne then set off to walk the three quarters of a mile home from here to her own home on the Lancia Mount Estate, which should have taken mere minutes. Now, this was an area that Leanne knew well and was comfortable in, because you get to know the area where you live like the back of your hand as a youngster, don't you? You feel comfortable with it. And because you know the area, you subconsciously used the quickest routes to and from any place. 
The majority of her journey home was through familiar streets, across a busy main road and through a series of urban sprawling estates. As we've said, Leanne's turf, if you like. But from where she left Sarah, at the corner of Wither Park Road and Huffley Lane, Leanne's journey home would be made so much quicker by making her way along a footpath within a wooded valley in the Bramley area known as Huffley Gill, off which there were several footpaths that led onto Bramley's Musgrave estate, that ultimately led onto the Landseer estate where Leanne lived. Although the topography of the area may have changed in the 22 years since the events I'm discussing here, between a study of Google Maps and me visiting the scene myself, I'm fairly confident that if using Huffley Gill as a shortcut home from there, Leanne would have gone from the footpath onto Musgrave Bank, onto Rainville Rise, following this around to Rainville Road, and eventually crossing Outgang Lane to her home estate. It's the quickest, most logical and direct way, and would have taken only a few minutes to walk at best. When Sarah called her friend at home at about 5.20pm, she was surprised then to learn that Leanne hadn't yet arrived home, telling Sharon that Leanne had walked back home from near a house. Leanne's mother then called Leanne's mobile phone, by now half an hour after she'd left Sarah, but it rang out after ringing 20 times, the voicemail kicking in, which said, Hi, it's Leanne here, I can't get to the phone right now, call back later, bye. When she immediately rang it again, it cut off this time after just four rings. Subsequent attempts to call it met with a phone that was either out of signal or was turned off. By now grown increasingly worried, Sharon, Michelle and several family friends, accompanied by the family's three Rottweiler dogs, set off to make their way along the most likely route they thought Leanne would have taken home from where she'd left Sarah, expecting, hoping, to meet her en route at any moment. After borrowing torches from the local church, the party separated and each took one of the several streets that she could possibly have walked up from Huffley Lane to get home, covering everywhere. Each party member met back up at Huffley Gill and indeed, a cursory search for Leanne was made along the unlit path there, a path that Sharon had instilled in Leanne not to walk down in the dark, and which I can understand completely why, because even in daylight, it seems a desolate enough place. But of her, there was no sign. At 7.04pm, a now frantic Sharon rang police at Pudsey Station to report her daughter as a missing person. Immediately, there was cause for concern, and police took the report very seriously, escalating it to a Category A incident. Whilst many teenagers are troublesome, and how many times were you later home than you should have been at that age? Always with an excuse, isn't it? Leanne was a happy, conscientious young woman. She had no worries, she was doing well at school, she was happy at home and with Wayne, and had indeed made plans with Sarah for later that evening, for only a short time after she was last seen. So this was surely not a disappearance of her own accord. Following a full description of Leanne and what she was wearing that day being gleaned from her family, describing her as 5 feet 4 inches tall, slim and fair-haired that she wore in a French twist style, with a pierced left eyebrow, 
I'm wearing a blue reversible LS jacket, a black and white polo neck sweater, black trousers and black ankle boots, plus police collecting Leanne's toothbrush for the purposes of any DNA identification and a copy of her fingerprints obtained from her diary, standard operating procedure in a Category A missing person inquiry. That Sunday evening, police immediately launched a search for Leanne. Detective Superintendent Chris Gregg of the West Yorkshire Police was to lead the investigation into Leanne's case, which came to be codenamed Operation Conifer. He reflected later. Alarm bells were ringing from the off because of the circumstances and how Leanne had disappeared. It was a late November night. Quite simply, we were looking at three quarters of a mile. That three quarters of a mile from the bus stop to her home. But complicating this search, however, was the fact that the area in which Leanne had disappeared within consisted of vastly varying terrain. Within the designated red route of three quarters of a mile from where she was last seen by Sarah to her home on the Lancia Mount estate, there were more than a thousand houses and 150 plus commercial premises to search, as well as open areas, woodland, canals, and waterways, any of which by that time. Leanne could be in. As the searches got underway and the hours turned into days, Leanne's family and loved ones had become familiar figures at a series of press conferences where they made emotional appeals to the public for any assistance they may provide in the search for Leanne. Flanked by large size missing person posters of her, the picture that's become synonymous with her shows her posing smartly in her school uniform. They must always be hard and upsetting things for any families of missing or murdered people to do, but are necessary to drive home any appeals and make that person in question come off the page. Leanne's father Michael had just gone on holiday to Tenerife the day before she disappeared, but upon hearing of his missing daughter, immediately flew back to the UK to join in the hunt for Leanne, and upon his arrival back, he, Sharon, and their daughter Michelle, joined in unity to face the gathered press. Even Leanne's boyfriend Wayne appeared with them and pleaded with her to get in touch, Wayne saying, I can't believe this is happening. It's a nightmare. It's totally out of character for her. Sharon, meanwhile, told the press, Leanne is just a normal teenager. The last time I saw her, she was fine. She was happy. Me, Leanne and her sister Michelle were like a whole together. Now, a third of us is missing and it seems life will never be the same again. Fighting back tears, her father Michael told how he had last seen Leanne two days before she disappeared as she waved to him whilst she was walking to school and added, She has no problems, we had a laugh together, she's a really outgoing person. She's an outgoing, outspoken girl, very much loved. The search for Leanne eventually grew enormous, to a scale at that time that could only have been rivalled by actions in the Yorkshire Ripper investigation, and which involved uniformed officers drafted in from all over the force. At one point, there were some 200 officers involved in the hunt, including 30 detectives, the rest comprised of uniformed officers with operational support from the dog section, the mounted section, underwater search and air support, 
Even civilian volunteers were employed in the hunt, from Calder Valley search and rescue right through to members of British Waterways. Alongside searching each property and outbuilding on this red route, the area refuse collection was halted and searched, and several miles of the Leeds to Liverpool Canal, stretching from Spring Garden Lock to Bramley Falls, was drained to a depth of a metre to officiate underwater searching, which was also later extended to include the nearby River Air. Yorkshire Water were brought in to identify any abandoned drainage shafts and wells, and more than 38 of these in the area were examined, and Leanne's entire prospective route on foot home, including Huffley Gill, was fingertip searched four times. These mass searches eventually produced a discarded balaclava that was ultimately DNA matched to a local burglar who was ruled out of the investigation. Six mobile phones, an umbrella and an Elizabeth Duke bag although none of these latter items were found to be items belonging to Leanne. Police and volunteers had soon searched a total area of 1,600 acres. That's more than 1,400 football pitches, that is, if you can imagine that. They'd taken 189 written statements from members of Leanne's family, their friends and acquaintances, and people in the Bramley area had singled some 140 people out for DNA testing who had come to notice as a result of the investigation, and had activated search warrants to investigate 12 separate addresses in Leeds. But it led to nothing. It was like Leanne had vanished from the face of the earth. Leanne's family were involved in the thick of this activity also, tirelessly searching for her every day, considering even the most extreme possibilities in desperation. They even went looking in the Leeds red light areas, thinking that Leanne, for some reason unbeknownst to anyone, had drifted into sex work. A week after her disappearance, investigators reconstructed Leanne's last movements, and her sister Michelle and her best friend Sarah bravely set out to do this. For the reconstruction, Sarah wore the same clothes she had a week previously whilst Michelle wore a black and cream ribbed polo neck jumper, black trousers and boots, completed with a navy blue casual woolen LS jacket, an identical outfit to that her sister was wearing when she disappeared. To increase the already remarkable physical similarity between the two girls, Michelle had even styled her hair as Leanne wore hers, and had had her eyebrow pierced, just like Leanne's. Mirroring the sequence of events that had occurred seven days earlier, Michelle and Sarah got onto a single-decker number 16 bus from Leeds city centre, where, 20 minutes later, they got off and walked together for five minutes, until they parted company near Sarah's house. Michelle then made her way down Huffley Lane and onto the gill itself, the unlit track surrounded by trees, before she cut off onto the nearby council estate and walked the last 10 minutes to her home. Flanked by police officers all the way, each of them carried photographs of Leanne, and spoke to people they encountered along the route to ask if they'd seen the missing girl a week before. Detective Superintendent Greg said, Michelle is really upset about what's happened with her sister. It's taken a lot of courage for her to do what she's done today. We can't explain why Leanne's disappeared at this stage but we have to remain hopeful 
that she is going to make a safe return. Now, this reconstruction did bring two important points of information to police attention. A woman named Linda Wade, a dog walker who often used Huffley Gill, told police that in the days leading up to Leanne's disappearance, she had frequently seen an unkempt man described as being about 5 feet 8 inches tall and of stocky build with a round reddish face that may possibly have been scarred, hanging around in the gill area and attempting to engage the many school children who used it as a shortcut in conversation. He was consistently wearing the same outfit, a black woolen hat, three-quarter length waterproof jacket and dirty jeans, and was always accompanied by a small black and tan terrier dog that Mrs. Wade said was very distinctive due to its squashed typeface. A man of this description had not come to police attention during the house-to-house inquiries at that time, and so Linda helped police to create an artist's impression of the man, which was released to the media on the 4th of December. And if you head over to the show's Instagram page, you can see a picture of this artist's impression. The second piece of information, a chilling one, but one that all but confirmed the collective thoughts of police that Leanne had come to some harm, was that at around the time she'd parted company with Sarah and began to walk home down the footpath, a witness living nearby to Huffley Gill had heard a distinct scream coming from the area. It was a single one and was quickly stifled, but it was unmistakably a scream. Police believe that scream came from Leanne. Now, whilst her family clung on to the hope that she was still somewhere, and for some reason unknown to them just hadn't come home, as of course you would cling, wouldn't you? Leanne's family and Sarah tried each day calling her mobile phone in the hope she would eventually answer, but she never did, as each time it was still switched off. But on the back of no clothing or personal effects found to be missing from her bedroom, and no activity on her bank account, plus the fact that, as we've said, Leanne was a happy youth who was not involved in any trouble and had never gone missing before, police were by this time privately convinced that Leanne had come to harm. Following the first 48 hours drawing a blank, the crucial period in the search for any missing person, the mass search results revealing nothing, and this scream that had been heard, they were forced to the conclusion that Leanne hadn't run off somewhere and wasn't lying injured somewhere after an accident. Leanne had been abducted. But apart from that solitary scream, no one had come forward to say they'd heard or witnessed a struggle or a girl being forced into a car. Nothing at all. It was simply like she'd vanished from the face of the earth. Understandably, the build-up to Christmas that year was unbearable for Leanne's family and friends, who continued making the public appeals, even being filmed by the media placing Leanne's Christmas present out at home, desperate and convinced that their daughter, sister and friend would be home to open them. On Thursday the 21st of December, Sharon Hawkhead made another tearful public appeal, in which she faced the camera and said, I want my daughter home for Christmas. The last 25 days have been dreadful. I've lurched from despair to hysteria, but I know we've got to keep going. 
I've bought her a few presents, but there's no tree and no decorations. We just can't bring ourselves to celebrate this year. If somebody has her against her will, for God's sake, let her go. She also renewed her appeal for potential eyewitnesses to come forward, saying, You might think the information is irrelevant, but it could provide a vital clue. Now by this time also, the National Missing Persons Helpline had joined forces with the supermarket frozen foods manufacturer Iceland, and pictures of missing Leanne were placed on milk cartons for distribution throughout the UK. As we've said before, I'm unsure as to whether Iceland still do this, and if not, then why ever not, this should be standard, surely. Also, a businessman from the Leeds district of Scarcroft named Sean Clark, himself a father of three, had put up a £10,000 reward for information leading to the safe return of Leanne. Sean was driven to do this after seeing the tearful appeals from the Tiernan family, and explained, I was very moved because at the same time I was sorting out my presence for my own kids. I felt frustrated and after thinking it through, I decided to offer the reward because somebody somewhere is going to pass that information on to the parents or the police. But as Christmas and New Year came and went, there was no sign of Leanne. The weeks turned into months and the Tiernan family still waited for any news. Ideally for Leanne to walk through the door at last, and for months Sharon even left the back door unlocked each night, in case she would come home and not be able to get in. But by now, the grandparents Hilary and Terry, and even her sister Michelle, were resigning themselves to the realisation, but the sense of foreboding, that Leanne wouldn't be coming home. Several documentaries I used for research for the episode contain interviews with Leanne's family, and throughout each, Sharon Hawkhead maintains that even when faced with harsh reality, she could do nothing but cling to that glimmer of hope that her youngest daughter, the missing third musketeer, would one day come home. Now, I can't imagine what that must be like. As a parent, Do you shut yourself off from the stark reality that she most likely won't after such a length of time and with absolutely no sign of her or any news because the alternative is something far too painful or so alien that you refuse to accept it because you just can't? Or do you feel guilty as though by accepting what has most likely happened as you would believe if you were witnessing it happening to someone else then you are in some way giving up on your child. Every single time I've researched a case such as this for the show, my heart has gone out to the families who find themselves in the glare of the press because you can see the devastation and the heartbreak they're going through. And pictures such as that of the families of Mark Tilsley, Annette Wade, Sophie Hook or Robbie G and Paul Barker, all tales we've covered before here on The Enthusiast are ones that will forever stay with me. But unlike Leanne's family here, those families were immediately in the spotlight dealing with their grief because their children had been found, whereas Leanne's family still had that slight, very slight glimmer of hope that it might turn out all right. I can't begin to imagine what's worse, the pain of acceptance or the not knowing, 
but hoping. Each must be horrendous. Leanne's family eventually went back to as normal a routine as possible to get through the nightmare that had been inflicted upon them, with Sharon returning to her job as a finance clerk and Michael his as an engineer. Their family rallied around and pulled closer together, finding some comfort for a time attending a local spiritualist church. They still took part in searches of the local area and made periodic television appeals, and Sharon and Michelle even took part in an 18-mile sponsored walk from Pudsey to Wakefield to thank the National Missing Persons Helpline for its support of them, just desperate to be doing something. Meanwhile, over the ensuing months, detectives from Operation Conifer went through every possible angle that they had, over and over, and followed up on several reported sightings of Leanne from places as far afield as Blackpool and Doncaster, but all were mistaken, and each time a body was found anywhere in the UK, details of it were telexed immediately to the incident room at Milgarth Police Station in Leeds, in case a description of it matched that of Leanne. But there was still no sign of her. Not until nine months after her disappearance, on Monday the 20th of August, 2001. 13 miles away from the suburb of Bramley, on the border of North and West Yorkshire, lies Lindley Wood Reservoir, the first in a chain of four such reservoirs created following the construction of dams built along the River Washburn in the late 19th century. Situated just off the B6451 Otley to Blubberhouses Road, a few miles north of the market town of Otley, the reservoir is a popular local beauty spot, with the woods bordering the east shore of the reservoir that is named after them and a special favourite with picnicking day trippers, hikers and dog walkers. Now coincidentally the area is also one we have been to before here on the show, many years ago, as it was within a car park on the same B6451 road that the rampage of the Phantom of the Forest, Barry Prudhomme, began way back in 1982. The episode featuring that case in question is one from several years back now from an episode I featured in the second series of the show, Death on Duty, and one account I sourced claims that that particular spot, the Warren Point car park, is still known in the locality as Prudhomme's car park. Other sources claim that it was in the same car park that on the afternoon of Monday the 20th of August 2001, a dog walker named Mark Bisson parked up to walk his dogs in Lindley Wood. But I can't confirm this and I don't wish to give way to what may just be sensationalising and inaccurate. For other sources claim that it's at a spot of the woods opposite the former Hunter's Stones transmitter mast. Regardless, that afternoon Mark had parked up nearby to Lindley Woods and had set off inside to walk his dogs. When about 50 yards in from the road, his attention was drawn to a sizeable bundle lying some feet away in the dark, thickly wooded area. It was so out of place that his curiosity was piqued and he decided to investigate it further. Upon approach, Mark noticed that the bundle consisted of a sizeable parcel for want of a better word, and was wrapped in a faded floral pattern duvet cover. 
He also noticed a definite attempt at a hole lying just three feet from it. Not wanting to proceed any further then, because of what he suspected he'd found, Mark immediately retraced his steps to his car, from where he then summoned police. Within minutes, North Yorkshire police were at the scene, and when an officer gingerly opened the bundle and a sock protruded, confirmed that indeed Mark had discovered a carefully wrapped human body. Acting on a hunch, with a high-profile Operation Conifer being undertaken by the neighbouring West Yorkshire force firmly in mind, a call was placed late that afternoon to the incident room at Milgarth, informing them of the find. Detective Chief Superintendent Gregg said later that he instinctively knew, as soon as that telephone call was received, that the hunt for Leanne had now sadly become the hunt for her killer. The location where the body had been dumped, although only 50 yards from the road, was in a thicket of larch and pine trees, and would have been screened from the road and difficult to discover. In theory, it could have lain there for a considerable period of time. But this didn't appear to have been the case. There was no evidence of animal interference with the body, and a distinct absence of fallen pine needles upon the duvet cover, and Mark Bisson, a regular walker through that section of the woods, was adamant that it had not been there when he'd last visited with his dogs several weeks before. It didn't appear to have been in situ for too long, perhaps just days, certainly no more than a week or two, and it appeared as though the killer had been in the process of digging a grave to conceal it, but had been interrupted in doing so by thick foliage and tree roots, and as such, had decided to just abandon it where it lay, as a round hole, two feet in width and a foot deep, was discovered just three feet away from the body. A cursory examination, after the body had been photographed in situ at the scene, revealed it to be the body of a fully clothed young woman who had been encased in a series of sealed green bin liners, and upon a police surgeon certifying death at the scene, the body was then removed to Harrogate Mortuary for a post-mortem examination, whilst the area of Lindley Woods was sealed off as a crime scene. Suspecting it was the tragic missing teenager, ahead of the confirmation by DNA, dental and fingerprinting, Leanne's family were cursorily informed of the discovery, with Sharon saying later, Police called to tell me they'd found a body, and I've felt absolutely terrible ever since. All I'm doing is drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. By two days after the discovery, the DNA and fingerprint analysis of the body had sadly confirmed beyond doubt that Leanne had finally been found and the saddened yet determined Detective Chief Superintendent Greg was forced to then relay the tragic news to Leanne's family, making the call that each of them dreaded receiving and breaking their collective hearts. Michelle, who was at the time at her father's, was summoned back to her mother's house, barely able to catch Sharon as she collapsed in grief outside. You can't even begin to imagine, can you? Poor family. At the initial press conference following the discovery of and confirmation that it was Leanne's body, Sharon, Michael and Michelle all bravely sat and faced the cameras, where Sharon wept as she told the assembled press 
We miss her terribly. She was my mate, my baby, and I miss her so much. We can't put into words how we feel today. We've been living in hope since she went missing, and we were praying that this was not Leanne. We would ask anyone who knows anything about who has done this to please contact the police. Sharon could not continue as she had to leave the room too distraught to speak any further. She said years later in a newspaper interview, When we did the first press conference after she disappeared, I did my best to answer questions that were fired at me from all over the room as I sat there blinded by the lights. Afterwards, I was told that I'd not been emotional enough. After the first occasion, we used a prepared script because it was better for me. No one's ever told me how to behave in front of the media. When they'd found her, we went into the room in front of everyone and I couldn't speak. I broke down and I had to run away. At the time, you do what you're told you should and you do it because you think it'll help. But that was too much. Words fail, don't they? What can you say to that? Michael Turnan, meanwhile, had been told by police that his daughter was dead on the day of his son's sixth birthday. And just days after the discovery of Leanne's body, he told the Yorkshire Post newspaper, We always knew she would get in touch for Jack's birthday. Last year, she was here for the party with her best friend Sarah. She's never missed it yet. This year, it was like a sign to us that she'd remembered and got in touch. Joshua's only three and Chloe is one and a half. They don't understand at all what's happened. But when Jack heard that Leanne was missing, he said to me, Daddy, can we go and look for Leanne? It's hard to know what to say to him, but he knows now that she's dead. Jack knows now that Leanne is a star in the sky and that when it twinkles, it means she's looking after us. He added that until the previous week, the family always believed that Leanne would be found alive, continuing. The whole time she's been missing, I always thought she was alive. I think we made ourselves believe it. When the police told us that a body had been found in North Yorkshire, we just hoped it wasn't her. But when they said it was in Otley, we began to fear the worst. Later that afternoon, they said that the body was a young woman. And although we prayed and prayed that it wasn't Leanne, I think we knew deep down that it was. I'm sure she must have known who did this, because she would never have got into a car with strangers, and would have screamed the place down if anybody had tried to attack her. The family collectively said that although the discovery of Leanne's body was the worst possible news, it was a relief that she'd been found as the nightmare of the previous nine months could have continued indefinitely if her killer had buried her. Michael continued, The police say it looks like he was disturbed as he was digging a grave. Just imagine if they'd never found her. At least now I'm convinced that they will find whoever did this. The police have been fantastic all along, but now they can start to get evidence, which we're sure will mean they will get him. What can you say about a man who would tie up a 16-year-old girl and strangle her? He needs to be caught and soon. If anybody has any shred of evidence, no matter how insignificant they think it is, please, please go to the police. 
The person who killed my daughter kept her body for a long time and then had to get rid of her. Why did circumstances change? If people are aware of what is going on around them, we will find her killer. What a remarkable family indeed. And how heartbreaking is that? How heartbreaking to hear. When the body had arrived at Harrogate Mortuary, Leanne's body was found still fully clothed in the clothing that she was last seen in some nine months before, although her coat, her boots, and her property, her mobile phone, umbrella, and the jewellery she'd bought were missing. Her hands had been bound behind her back with three yellow and black plastic cable ties in a unique restraint, a black one and a yellow one secured around each wrist respectively, then both are joined with a further black one to create a form of plastic handcuff, like a daisy chain, Detective Superintendent Greg remarked later. And although there were no cuts or bruising apparent to her body, Leanne's cause of death was quickly determined as strangulation, determined so because Leanne's killer had left in place not only a black and red striped woolen scarf around her neck, but a clear plastic cable tie was also underneath secured tightly around her throat. The cable tie had been pulled so tightly around Leanne's throat that it was found to be a diameter of just 10 centimetres when it was forcibly cut off. Horror beyond belief indeed. There was no obvious evidence of any sexual assault found at the post-mortem. Indeed, no traces of foreign DNA were found upon her body. And as I said, she'd been found fully clothed. But the position of Leanne's underclothes, somewhat dishevelled, suggested that she'd been indecently assaulted at some time before death. When redressed, her body had then been wrapped intricately. A heavy-duty green plastic bin liner, 40 microns thick, had been placed over her head and secured with an 8-inch light-tan buckle-type leather dog collar before she'd been placed within another bin liner, which had been secured at the top with black twine, and then another had been placed over her body from the opposite end, and secured in the same way, almost like a Russian doll, a process that had been repeated no less than ten times. Her wrapped body had then been placed into a faded floral pattern duvet cover, the front of which contained individual flowers in rows surrounded by a floral border. It also had four bows in a pattern called Eternity Bows, with the reverse of the cover being the same, but without the floral border, and which had again been sealed with twine. A forensic examination of the duvet could not determine any manufacturer's model. Years of extensive washing had faded it and all but obliterated any marks on the label but a number of hairs were found within one corner of it that were removed for examination, and that were later determined to be dog hairs from a black and tan-coloured dog. Similar hairs would later be found upon Leanne's clothing, along with some visible red fibres. But the appearance of Leanne's body and an internal examination provided further evidence, raised questions, and also a horrific possibility. Leanne's hair, still tied in a ponytail with a plastic hairband and clips in her familiar French wave style, as she'd left home that Sunday nine months before, 
showed evidence that before the bin liner had been placed over her head, she had lain on rough ground. Several spores of different pollen and minute fragments of ash and burnt wood were apparent within her hair and her nasal cavity, and were removed and preserved for examination. The post-mortem also revealed that although there was deterioration and decomposition to Leanne's body, this was more advanced internally than externally. Now, police were already certain that her body had not been left at the spot in Lindley Woods for the previous nine months, indeed, for no more than a week or two, but an examination of heart tissue taken from Leanne showed gaps where the tissue and cells of the heart had been pushed apart. In the opinion of the pathologist, these gaps having been formed by ice crystals, meaning it likely that for a long period of time, and I'm talking several months since her disappearance, Leanne's body had been kept frozen. But for what reason, and where had she been kept? Had it been too risky to dump her body beforehand, and so she'd been kept somewhere out of necessity? Or had she been kept as a macabre trophy of sorts for a killer to gloat over whenever he wished to? And if the latter was so, then why get rid of the body now? For what reason? Was it out of necessity due to a change in circumstance? Or horrendously, was it possibly to make way for a new, fresher victim? What pit of darkness does such a creature responsible for doing something like that come from, I ask you? How utterly horrific. At a press conference following the post-mortem examination, and with news that the missing person appeal had now become a murder hunt, codenamed Operation Conifer, Detective Chief Superintendent Greg said, It has been a harrowing time for Leanne's family. Clearly, they had no idea what had happened to their daughter, and they'd been trying to understand what had happened to her. She was a lovely girl, and will be sadly missed by her family and many friends. We are determined to catch whoever was responsible for her death. It is a shocking murder and sad that a young girl has been so tragically killed. We are completely open-minded as to how the death came about and are considering all the options. It's not known how long the body had been in that position, but at the moment, we do not believe that she was killed there. The initial examinations would suggest that she's not been there since last November and teams are working to hopefully determine what timescale we are looking at. We are going to conduct further tests, which will take several days to complete. I believe she was killed shortly after she was last seen, only because she was dressed in similar clothing, and her hair was still tied in a ponytail with a plastic hairband. We're exploring the possibility that she's been in someone's house, and has taken her coat and boots off. It's a possibility we can't rule out, that she's gone to the house of someone she knew. Her body had deteriorated and decomposed, but not as much as you would expect if she'd been killed just after disappearing. If her body had been kept in storage at a low temperature, it would explain it. The early indications are her body has not been left there very long. Where's she been until now? We have no idea where Leanne has been until she was taken to Lindley Woods but I would suggest that Leanne has not been left in Lindley Woods at random. The person will be familiar with that location, not necessarily because they live in the area, 
but by using the road to travel to work or to visit friends and family or for recreation. This is a local beauty spot which is regularly used by walkers and I would like to appeal for anyone who may have been in this area recently and who may have information to come forward and contact us. People may have seen something suspicious, particularly somebody carrying a large sack or a parcel. The care that the killer took to keep Leanne's body for nine months indicates he didn't intend to just leave her, so why suddenly has Leanne's body been possibly taken from what was considered to be a safe and secure storage place? which had certainly gone undetected until now. There has got to be a reason for that, such as having to move house. We would like people to think, has something happened in the normal working lives that has caused someone to need to take some quick action, something that has forced them to move the body quickly? And with this appeal, the hunt for Leanne's killer launched publicly in earnest. Whilst a team of 50 crime scene officers remained in place at Lindley Woods and conducted a fingertip search of the area where Leanne's body had been dumped, which was extended to an area of 20,000 square metres, West Yorkshire Police brought in ex-SAS tracker Eddie McGee to try and determine the route that Leanne's killer had taken in and out of Lindley Woods when dumping her body. Now, coincidentally, Eddie McGee is yet another connection to the same Series 2 episode, Death on Duty, that I mentioned earlier. As back in 1982, he'd been the very same person brought in during the manhunt for Barry Prudhomme. The Phantom of the Forest is a fascinating tale, and of course, that episode is still available in the show's back catalogue for you folks, in case it's a tale that you've missed. Very highly recommended it is as well. Meanwhile, The appeal for anyone known to have a connection with Lindley Woods, hikers, dog walkers, even poachers, did bring a flurry of calls from the public, including one from a woman from the Leeds area named Deborah Benjamin, and one from a Leeds man named Michael Hardin, both suggesting names which when collated, turned out to be of the same person, and turned out later to both be crucial. It also brought a response in vehicles and activities cited and remembered in the area, and at a press conference some days later, Detective Superintendent Greg gave details of the sightings of two specific vehicles that police wished to trace and eliminate. On Wednesday the 1st of August, during the early afternoon, a couple had been driving on the B6451, heading towards Otley and approaching Lindley Woods when they saw a car parked at the roadside against some trees, their first impression being, what a funny place to park. Though they couldn't recall the make, model or number plate of the vehicle, they claimed it was a red car, not a new one, but one with a lot of chrome trim on it. There were two men by the vehicle, both described as being in their 20s, of average build and casually dressed who were manoeuvring a bundle across the bonnet of the car and onto the ground, and then manoeuvring it with their feet on the grass. The impression the passing couple got was that it was dark material and possibly a bundle of carpet, which appeared to be heavy. Now these men were never traced, but this sighting was, ultimately, ruled out of the inquiry. The second sighting was much more crucial to police for it related to a car that had been seen on Monday the 13th of August, only a week before Leanne's body was discovered. 
A retired couple were returning home from a morning out in Harrogate on the B6451 at about 11 to 11.30am and as they approached the lay-by at Warren Point, very near to the spot where Leanne's body was found, they saw a blue vehicle, possibly a Ford Escort model, parked on the left-hand side near the trees. The boot of the car was open and there was a man at the back of the car reaching in and lifting something out, which as they got closer, they saw looked a large, loose bundle of floral patterned rags. The couple told police that they'd remarked at the time the shared hope that the man wasn't fly-tipping at such a picturesque spot, although as they'd driven past had not been able to glance much of a description of the man, for the man standing at the car had turned so his back was to the couple, merely being able to describe the car as a four-door model, and the man as white, 5 feet 10 inches tall and stocky, in his mid-40s, casually dressed with trousers and a casual shirt, and having greying hair. Police didn't believe this was just a fly tip of the couple had driven past. They believed firmly that the couple had witnessed Leanne's killer in the process of dumping her body. So now police looked at the evidence they did have that they'd collated. The bin liners, the duvet, the twine used to secure them, the different coloured cable ties, the hairs and fibres recovered from Leanne's clothing, the pollen and wood fragments removed from her hair, and the dog collar. From this, they then began to work out what they knew about Leanne's killer. They believed it was likely that this was a local man, the knowledge of Huffley Gill suggested someone with an intimate knowledge of the Bramley area, someone who also had knowledge of Lindley Woods and felt comfortable there, for though there were countless other places within the 13 miles from Bramley to leave a body, offenders offend where they're familiar and comfortable with, after all, don't they? It was someone who most likely had a dog or dogs, explaining the dog collar found around Leanne's neck and the presence of dog hairs, and likely one who had access to a blue Ford Escort type vehicle, police giving serious weight to the sighting at the body dump spot a week before. Due to Leanne's body being stored in a freezer for months, the killer either had a commercial premises available to him to do so, or he lived alone to be able to do this, putting the killer at an older end of the spectrum, most likely in his late 30s to 40s. It sounds a mere sketch of a person there though, doesn't it? And one that though it does narrow a suspect pool down, it doesn't far enough really. You could argue it was just educated guessing based on the evidence at face value, which in fairness it was. And is a hypothesis you or I could have come up with based upon the account we've heard thus far. But when scientific brilliance meets dogged detective work, that's when the real miraculous results come in. But we shall get to that in due course. As the hunt for a killer continued, on the 28th of September 2001, the day after what would have been her 17th birthday, Leanne's funeral was held at the former Trinity Methodist Church on Bramley's Wesley Terrace, less than a mile from where she disappeared from and from her home on Landseer Mount. It was the church where Leanne had been baptised many years before, and now 
It was to be where her family, friends and loved ones gathered together to say goodbye to her. Leanne's family had decided beforehand that the hour-long service should not be one of overwhelming sadness, but rather a celebration of her life. And thus, most mourners were dressed in vibrant colours, reflecting the type of person Leanne had been. Leanne's mother Sharon, her sister Michelle and her best friend Sarah, the last person to see Leanne alive, apart from her killer, were joined by other friends to carry Leanne's white coffin into the church as a floral tribute bearing the words, Night Night Baby, was also taken into the service to the sounds of the Guns N' Roses song, November Rain. About a hundred people packed into the small church and the service was relayed to crowds of more mourners outside as they celebrated Leanne by singing the teenager's favourite hymns including Give Me Oil In My Lamp and Ye Shall Go Out With Joy. The service and later internment being videotaped for the family by a family friend. Sister Janet Durbin, the deaconess who led the service, then paid tribute and testament to Leanne, saying, Leanne was a normal, happy, fun-loving teenager, half-child and half-young lady. She still loved to spend time with her grandma and granddad, enjoying walking to church on Sunday mornings with her grandma. One of her uncles even still called her his chocolate chip niece because of her love of chocolate. You are naturally sad because you won't physically see Leanne again, for whether you knew her as a daughter, granddaughter, sister or niece, she was always a friend. Wherever your memories, cherish them. They are like gifts that no one can take away from you. After the service, friends and family wept as Leanne's coffin was taken to the nearby Hilltop Cemetery for a private internment. Scenes from the video showing parts of the service featured in an ITV documentary some years later to the soundtrack of an incredibly moving poem written specifically for Leanne, and which I include here as follows. Leanne, so young, such a beauty, she lit up our lives like the sun. Taken so cruelly before her time, how could this bad deed be done? A girl of sixteen summers, her whole life about to begin. Taken so swiftly before her time, the result of a terrible sin. So Lord, we ask for assistance in light of this hideous crime. Ensure that justice can be done and the culprit serves their time. Your eyes, they shone like diamonds. In our hearts you'll always remain. Leanne, we love you and miss you. One day we'll be with you again. Leanne, forever we love you. One day we'll be with you again. It's quite something that, isn't it? Very touching. Today, Leanne's grave, in a peaceful spot at Hilltop Cemetery, is still very well kept and tended, lovingly decorated with teddies, fairies, butterfly wings and cuddly toys, 
every tribute that the admitted girly girl loved really, and is visited regularly by her loved ones. A marble headstone bearing a photograph of a smile in Leanne reads, In loving memory of Leanne Tiernan, tragically taken from us November the 25th, 2000, aged 16 years, so greatly loved and missed, November rain forever falls. Now, I visited Leanne's grave whilst I went on location to research the tale. Today, a small cross has been added to Leanne's grave to mark the passing of her grandfather Terry last year. However, out of respect to Leanne and her family, I had no wish to video or photograph the scene and share it, and I never would have. Some places should remain private after all. I went purely for after spending so much time researching her tale, I wanted to leave flowers there and my own message of condolence for her and her family. But it's not the only memorial to Leanne that there is. A memorial garden was opened for her in Bramley in 2002, and a plaque there reads, Loving memories of Leanne, we looked but we could not find, but there still remains an echo of a giggle, a glimpse of a smile, and the reflection of her lovely face in the deep corners of our minds. Remembered always by Junior Church and everyone at Sanford. With a girl so missed, so loved, how driven would you be to bring justice for Leanne and her family? You just wouldn't stop, would you? Indeed, Detective Chief Superintendent Greg, now long since retired, described in a documentary on the case some years later that upon seeing Leanne's body in Harrogate Mortuary, neither he nor any member of the Operation Conifer investigating team had anything less than, in his own words, a complete and utter driven determination to catch her killer. What police probably had not realised at that moment when Leanne's body was discovered, and the appeal stemming from it, when Operation Conifer officially turned into the murder inquiry it was in all but name being run as, was that everything at the body dump site, the items found on Leanne's body, and even the scene itself, were each integral pieces of the jigsaw in bringing a killer to first identification and then conviction. Police already had all of the evidence that would ultimately lead to a killer. It was all there that day in August 2001 which I shall explain about in the second part of Poacher, Petman, Predator, because this is a perfect place to leave the tale for this part, perfect, and there is so much more to come with it. As I said at the start, I'm sure many of you do know of this tale already, and there is a fair bit online available about the case to see or read, but this is a tale you don't scrimp on at all. You do justice for Leanne, no question, because she deserves nothing less. I shall also of course keep my own thoughts and feelings to myself until the tale's end, but rest assured, I shall air them when the time comes. With that then, part two will not put itself together, so I best go and do that. Pixie won't bother after all, the Enthusiacat is all about the glory, trust me. I thank you for joining me in the hairy football today, and I shall be back with you shortly, or next, depending on when you're listening into this. And all that remains for me to say then is that I've been, 
I still am, and hopefully still will be, Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all. Thanks for getting the show to Series 8. Stay safe. Until we speak next, goodbye for now.